You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. All right. Well, hey, we are fortunate once again to have Jason Minix with us, preaching to us. He came up from Austin this morning. So uh, if you missed his first week last week, that's on the podcast and uh, the internet in general. Sorry. Uh, and I would encourage you to go check that out. But anyway, here's Jason. Thank you. Good morning. Happy Easter. It's kind of hard preaching after the worship. Does it bring you to tears ever? Um, yeah. Um, so today we're celebrating the presence of new life. And Easter reminds us that amidst all the dying and fading away in our lives, there is a tenacious life that is emerging even now. And in fact, it can often take us by surprise. So often we're caught up in just getting through the day and enduring that we forget to look for the life that is also here, the life that wants to be lived. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was reminded of how disorienting the surprises of new life can be. Author Brene Brown shares this fun story of watching the Astros uh, win the World Series a few years ago and being so excited at the game that she reached into her husband's back pocket to give him a little squeeze and didn't even mind that her husband had left to use the restroom. <laughs> and it was a stranger who politely said, uh, excuse me, ma'am. And she, re she responded, uh, go Astros. <laughs> New life can be that way sometimes. And this morning, we're going to lean into being surprised and disoriented by life. Today invites us to embrace new life and give it a little squeeze. And yet, when we think about our experiences of new life, of God showing up in fresh ways, they are often more complex than we were anticipating. Today, we're going to take a walk, and we're going to join two people on the very first Easter who are encountering new life in a very different way than they were expecting, and in a way they were completely unprepared for. They were grieving the loss of their beloved teacher and friend, but more than that, they were devastated because God didn't show up in the way that they knew God would. They were expecting beauty and justice, and now they're crushed by images of torture and suffering. And yet, we'll see how patient Jesus is with their slowness to process and be open to a new experience of his presence today. So from Luke's account of this ordinary walk, we see that new life is already present in ways we don't yet recognize. Our text starts out, now that, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So I don't know how long it takes you to walk seven miles I'm guessing it might have been like two to three hours is kind of ballpark. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And we don't know exactly what kept them from recognizing him. Maybe he looked different. Um, I tend to think maybe there was something internal happening, like they were so disappointed or overwhelmed with grief that it, it just 
kept them from seeing what was right in front of them. And he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? It's like, how can you not know? Isn't that the way when we face loss and encounter someone who hasn't heard? Sometimes our loss is so big, it seems strange when we see life just going on as usual, or we have to explain. When we're overwhelmed with disappointment, confusion, and pain, oftentimes, before we can even begin to care about or see new life or God being present, we need a minute just to acknowledge what's been lost. So the first Easter actually started out in grief, (laughs) a grief so intense that they were arrested by it and couldn't recognize the one they were grieving. And Jesus gave them space to name their loss. They stood still, their faces downcast. So my greatest, and I'm going to share a story of my greatest moment of surprise at New Life. It actually came when my son was born. Now, I thought I pretty much knew what to expect with childbirth. Like, I had seen dozens of birthing moments on TV in the, in the movies, And I knew, like, I would be this father that just had, like, some tears, and I'd be holding, like, a pudgy pink little baby um, that's usually, like, a couple months old in the movies, I found out later. And have, like, a little bit of damp hair and swaddle. There'd be, like, no umbilical cord whatsoever. And the baby would cry, like, two times, just two, like, short cries, and then would immediately be calm, like, somehow knowing I was his father, through us, like, holding each other's gaze, you know. He would sigh with relief, and he'd look at me as if to say, boy, I'm glad that's over. Thanks, Dad. And and this is like, I had this all worked out in my head. And then he would just kind of smile and coo and maybe giggle. I pretty much, yeah, I pretty much knew exactly what to expect, right? (laughs) Because I had seen the movies. But you could imagine my surprise when a cone-headed, slimy, purple creature with like this white film could just flailing crying inconsolably appeared in what could only be described as a movie as a scene from the movie alien um i don't know if you've ever seen this movie but sigourney weaver the lead actress um in her encounters with baby aliens trying to eat her had done more to prepare me for this moment than any sterilized images of childbirth I've got a really good image of this here. This is also kind of what parenting feels like sometimes. It's just Sigourney Weaver bracing with an alien like two inches from her face, essentially. Okay, that's probably good. Um, Now, I love my son, uh, and being part of his life has been better than I could have ever hoped. But my first encounter with new life, with childbirth, it was not what I thought it would be. Like, he showed up in a way I wasn't prepared for. In fact, I really thought everyone had lied to me, really. (laughs) Um, And it turns out, actually, it wasn't all a lie. But I want to invite us this morning to consider how our ideas of what our life should be or what God should be may be in the way of us experiencing what's really present. And just starting off, I want to invite us to practice releasing our illusions and ideas 
as reality comes in. Like, consider for a moment, where was I expecting God or someone to show up for me? Like, I kind of thought if I trusted God, life would work out, but it hasn't. There used to be this presence, but now it's empty. Maybe you can relate to the very first Easter morning. How is life different from my picture of what I thought it would be? And can I release that picture just a little bit more today? Because when we release our illusions just a little, as these two travelers do in the passage, we begin to experience along with them a slow awareness that new life embraces our disillusionment. Jesus asks them to share more. What things, Jesus asks, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So it's not even that their vision of who they thought Jesus was didn't happen. Like they thought he would overthrow the Roman oppressors. But it's their grief itself isn't able to happen. Like the body's gone. Like what are we supposed to do? It would be like going to a funeral and someone telling you you have to be happy when you just need permission to fall apart for a minute. And then the most confusing thing happens. The stranger starts speaking to them in the way a teacher would talk to his students. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So what's important is he makes room for their disillusionment, but then he kind of like rattles them a bit. And he speaks to them in a way only a person who has the authority of deep love can talk to you and create openness rather than defensiveness. Have you ever had someone try to talk to you and the way they talk to you just get guarded and close up? But it was actually like the way Jesus was teaching, it opened them. It made them curious. When I read this scripture, I used to struggle with these two. I was like, what's going, like, what's your problem? Like, Jesus is right here. He's right in front of you. Why are you still complaining? Like, geez, like, get over it, you know? <laughs> but then I started to wonder, maybe I'm missing the point. Like, maybe I don't actually know what they were feeling and what they had lost. And it wasn't until I actually heard an interview with Brene Brown a couple years ago that I actually started to soften, and she was sharing some of her research on belonging. So I want to just share a clip for us this morning as we begin or continue. <laughs> it being eight or nine years ago, I was doing some research, and I was in a middle school, and I was doing focus groups with middle schoolers. 
And I was asking these middle schoolers what the difference was, what they thought the difference was between fitting in and belonging. And they just had these like incredibly simple and profound answers. You know, fitting in is when you want to be a part of something. Belonging is when others want you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They just, they just mm-hmm. rattled one off after the other. And I was so taken aback. And then a young girl raised her hand and said, you know, miss, it's really hard not to fit in or belong at school, but not belonging at home is the worst. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when she said that, probably half the kids either burst into tears or just put their heads down, like unable to speak. Other kids gave examples. You know, my parents were really athletic and popular. I'm not athletic. I'm not popular. I don't fit in with my family. I don't belong there. And just this thing washed over me of... For a middle schooler, and, yeah. and you know that age, no, yeah. for a middle schooler to say, hey, not belonging here is tough, but there's nothing worse than not belonging at home, yeah. you understood. I felt the magnitude of it in my bones. She goes on to say later, even though I lived it, I had never thought about not belonging at home as being such a universal experience of pain. And I was walking into HEB to do the grocery shopping. And when I heard it, I just stopped in the middle of the parking lot and was just caught by tears because I knew it was true. And then later that day, I was actually reading this passage about these two disillusioned ones. And I felt this empathy. I was like, oh, they just lost maybe the deepest belonging they'd ever known. They were wanted and chosen by a teacher who loved them deeply and gave himself completely for them. Of course, they're devastated, which makes the way Jesus cared for them all the more beautiful. He chides them like a loving parent and patiently explains to them. And I'm kind of caught by that, too, in community. It's hard to belong, isn't it? Like, you can show up here and maybe have some people wave to you, hopefully. I, <laughs> I still find it scary to go into a new church, personally. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be accepted. I don't know if I'm really going to be able to belong. So I want to just invite us into this question today. What is your disillusionment? <laughs> you can pick more than one. <laughs> you don't have to say it out loud. But, you know, I listed some. Like, I thought I was going to get a baby. I ended up with an alien. Um, He's not an alien anymore. I thought friendship would be safe, but it turns out. I thought marriage would be easy, but it turns out. I thought I'd be married by now and have kids by now, but it turns out. I thought God would be accessible and present with me no matter what, but it turns out. I thought life would be blank, but it turns out. <laughs> so maybe you have too many now. <laughs> Just pick one. But, and maybe you had an experience with God being present in your life at a certain time, and then it just stopped. And you thought, well, now what? Maybe God isn't real or has abandoned me. In my early 20s, um, I used to have um, this kind of thing I did every day where I had this little list of names where I'd pray for people and I'd read the Bible and then I'd take a walk and I would sing songs to God, like to the squirrels and the trees. And I felt like so close with God. 
Like there was such an intimacy. And it lasted like two years. Like I could do the same thing every day, like rinse and repeat, like every day. And then it just stopped. And I did the same things and it became like sand in my mouth. I was like, what is going on? I really thought like God had just left me, had abandoned me. And so I just started showing up in the morning and sitting in a chair with a cup of coffee and looking out the window. And what happened like very slowly was there was just this soft, gentle presence just being with me. And I was like, is this okay? Like, I'm not praying. I'm not reading my Bible. Like, is it okay just to show up and be in your presence? And I had this sense like, yeah, that's fine. You're tired. <laughs> like, rest. And I had this sense that I was in the presence of someone who not only loved me, but actually might like me. You know the difference? You're around. So sometimes people who love us, they, they have to tolerate us, you know. <laughs> but I had this sense God actually might like me. What if God is present in a new way and we just need someone to patiently show us? In the patience of Jesus with their disillusionment, our companions today discover how new life breaks open the ordinary meaning of our days. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. I always wonder if he's being kind of coy. He's like, oh, okay, I guess I'm just going to go on and sleep in the desert tonight, eat nothing. And they're like, no, no, come in. He's like, okay, I'll come in. I'll stay with you. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Like Jesus could have done so many things to open their eyes. He could have healed someone. He could have told a bad Jesus joke, like a bad dad joke, like only they would have recognized he could have become a being of pure light. He could have flown. I mean, he could have done all these things. But he does what's even more characteristic of who he was. He does the most Jesus thing of all just by eating with his friends. Throughout his life, he did more to heal their cultural violence just by sitting around a table with people he wasn't supposed to eat with. It's his blessing of bread and feeding his beloved that opens their eyes and helps them see he was with them the whole time. If you think about it, they just had this experience on the road where they're working through their grief and disillusion. They're being challenged in their despair. And it's slowly dawning on them. They're like, wait a minute. There's something familiar about this person. Something of God in this encounter, but it's different. But no, it can't be. It actually can't be because we know that when you die, you just die. You're just dead. That's what they believed. Like there isn't anything else. You're just food for worms. And then gathered around a meal, as Jesus does the simple gesture of breaking bread, he breaks open the meaning of their experience just as they're ready to see it. He shows them that God is actually bigger than death, that there is something else. And bigger than the ways they are accustomed to experiencing God, that there is actually life after the grave, after the tomb. And then he disappears. 
which is actually my favorite part of the whole passage. It's like I wonder if this isn't inviting us to be open to his form continually changing as we journey, to show up in new ways that we would be curious. How is God present in my life now? We keep looking for God in the way we once knew God. Or maybe you haven't ever experienced that. That's okay, too. <laughs> um, but what really matters today, I think, is the fact that it's bread. I think that really matters. The most ordinary part of their day and experience, the most taken-for-granted thing that they would have every day, God shows God's self in the bread. And this is where the realization of Easter pierces their awareness. So I began to ask this week, what is the thing in my life that's too obvious to have anything to do with deep reality? Like, what is the everyday thing that I take for granted and barely see? It's so normal and usual, I wouldn't even think to look for God being in that. Can you think of something, just something so ordinary? What's your bread? What's my bread? Um, for me this week, it's my daughter, Grace. I have an almost 18-year-old daughter. That's us hiking. Uh, we got done hiking. She's about to graduate from high school. I know y'all have some youth maybe getting close. Congratulations. Anybody getting ready to graduate? Woo-hoo! Um, I'm so proud of her, and I'm so sad <laughs> that she's leaving. She's not here, I wouldn't be saying all this. But you get like, here's like the dad perspective, right? Like, I can't wait for the life she has ahead of her. It's going to be amazing. But I'm also like, oh no. Like, I'm already grieving the fact that this person who's been part of my daily experience for almost 18 years is going to be going. And it's great. It's totally what needs to happen. And I'm already preemptively grieving. Any preemptive grievers here? Yeah, we got a few. Okay, great. And I didn't realize how much I was dwelling in the sadness of this really important life change until a friend asked me if I wanted to play a poetry game. And I was like, sure, what's, what's that? It's a couple months ago. And basically, we gave each other a prompt, and then we had five minutes to write a poem. And I was like, that's, that's cool. And the prompt my friend gave me was, my daughter, Grace. And inside, I'm like, you jerk. Like, <laughs> this is, you want to hear my five-minute poem? This is the poem I wrote, My Daughter Grace. I am deeply upset to report that my identity as a melancholy person was shattered some 17 years ago by a beautiful parasite. She sucked the daily grumps and ruminant sadness from my sense of self till it shriveled beyond usability. Alas, I'm now plagued by a daily smile, lightness, and general openness, and it's all her fault. I will never forgive her. <laughs> In that moment, I realized I was so caught up with being sad about her going, I was forgetting to enjoy that she's still here. She's still available. We can still have fun. And she has totally ruined me. Like, I used to really savor my mornings of being really grumpy and sad, and she just would come in and bounce on me. Just by being herself, she changed me. So I want to just invite you into that question today. What's your bread? 
How is new life emerging from the ordinary, taken-for-granted parts of your day? What's your bread? Maybe today you can relate to the travelers who are disillusioned on the very first Easter. And perhaps like them, you don't know what to make of your life. You need to experience how Jesus isn't in a hurry. He doesn't flinch at their despair or loss of faith and hope because he knows that Good Friday isn't the end of the story. The emptiness of the tomb isn't the last word. And there is fresh bread. New life is coming even now, shaking loose the threads of death and dank darkness. And even though in that moment Easter was there, it was present, and they couldn't see it, like God was patient. So on this beautiful morning, I want to invite you to consider that new life might already be with you, even if your life feels like you've been forgotten somehow. God is present even when we're stuck and we've lost our vision, lost our way. The sap of spring is already moving into the trunk and branches, even when it seems like the tree is dead. The leaves and buds are coming. Hold on. Consider today and taste the new bread. And I want to just close us with a prayer today. This is my prayer for us UBC community and friends. I pray this morning that the smallest things crack us wide to love and healing and hope. Even as we exhaust ourselves running away from the one who is close to us, as close to us as our breath, a sweet breeze and a simple meal. This is my prayer for us today in the deep love of God this patient God, remembering Jesus, who could not be held by any tomb. Amen. Happy Easter.